If you have a Bible, open it up to the Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 139 this morning. And we are finishing our Psalm series today, so I'm kind of kind of sad, kind of brokenhearted. I've, I've come to fall in love with the book this, uh, this year. Psalm 139 can be found on page 521 in the Black Bible that you'll see under the chair nearby. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one with you and keep it if you'd like. Page 521, Psalm 139, we're calling it this morning, Collide with Wonder. So in our Collide series, just to kind of wrap up where we've been, we've been challenged to allow emotion uh, to meet truth as we read the Psalms. And uh, what we've talked about is how as people we tend to run to one corner or the other. We are often emotional authenticity people or truth people. And the scriptures say we should be both. You, you don't get to stand on one side and point at the other people and say they're out of balance. We're, we're called to be both. We're called to be emotionally real and raw and honest with God and with other people. And we're also called to submit ourselves to God's word. So we've had a beautiful picture of that in the Psalms. The Psalms are uh, operating at multiple levels. They are the corporate songbook of the Bible. They are also a private prayer book. They're also most commonly run to as a counseling book for us as followers of Christ. And so uh, we've seen at all those different levels that the Psalms teach us to be real, teach us to pray, teach us to worship, teach us to be honest with God, but also to submit ourselves to His Word. This week, as we call it, Collide with Wonder, uh, we're seeing this picture of a God who searches us out. And the only reason we're okay with that is because he's wonderful, right? If you know you've done something wrong, and if you're guilty, you don't really want people searching around your life, do you? Um, But when you know that God is both just and gracious, you invite him, his searching look, his presence, you invite that into your life. And that's what we see in Psalm 139. So let's read it together. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies." 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. So this is our final week in the Psalms. It's another cursing psalm like we looked at last week. We call these imprecatory psalms. Uh, But a little easier for us to follow because at the end here, he curses not only the sin out there, but the sin that's within our own heart. And so we come as God's people asking God to remove the sin in our own hearts. Uh, Let me pray for us and we'll look at that in more detail. God, we pray that you would teach us and we do pray as the psalmist does that you would search us. We thank you that you know us. We thank you that you're inescapable and I pray that our hearts would be yielded to you. Pray that we would come to see you as the psalmist does as wonderful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can remember being searched uh, in elementary school. Some of you have probably had experiences like this, maybe not specifically like this, but I can remember in elementary school we were all sitting in our desks lined up uh, and a nurse would come through wearing gloves uh, and with toothpicks in her hands. Any of you remember this? I don't know. This might not have happened at your school. Maybe just a southern problem. Um, But she would go through child by child, row by row, with a toothpick digging around in your hair. Anybody anybody ever had this happen before? Uh, So they would just work their way through the whole school, through all the classrooms, looking for lice. And I can remember uh, not being worried about having lice. I loved it. I thought it was awesome because it was just, you know, like a massage. You just had this lady, you know, just kind of picking around on your head. I was like, oh, this feels so good. (laughs) And uh, I thought it was wonderful. But imagine that I was a kid that came in and I had lice and I knew I had lice. How do you think I would feel then, right? I would be horrified. I would be uh, scared, terrified that I was about to be found out. Well, we've all been on both sides of that equation, right? We've all been in places where Maybe we're being searched. Maybe we're being known. Maybe someone is finding things out about us, looking into our life, and we're completely relaxed about it. We're at ease because we enjoy the experience of getting to know the person or going through whatever procedure this involves. We've also all, because we're human beings and we're all sinners and we're all broken, we've all been through the experience of not wanting someone to know something about us, right? We've all been there. We all know what it's like to have the horror of being searched out. What I want you to understand is that the God of the universe has already searched you out. The God of the universe knows everything about you. And so that leaves you with two postures, one of either accepting his searching, invasive, uh, seeking interaction with you, accepting it because you see him as wonderful, you see him as the gospel portrays him as a God who is both just but also gracious because he poured his wrath out on Christ instead of you. Or you reject that love and you run from him. And you try to take care of your sin yourself. You try to hide from someone you really can't hide from. And so we have one of two postures when it comes to the searching of God. One is trying to deny and run from it and the other is embracing it. The psalmist models for us, it's a good idea to embrace it. It's a good idea to embrace the wonder of God's searching. The first thing that I want us to see in this text is the wonder of knowledge. God's knowledge is all comprehensive. The traditional theological term is omniscience. Have y'all heard that term before? Omniscience. So the Latin term scientia, we get the word science, just means knowledge. That's directly what it means. And so omni 
science or omniscience means all knowledge. And here we have a case that's being made that God knows everything. There's not stuff that God doesn't know. He knows everything. So there's this wonder we have at his comprehensive knowledge. Look again at verses 1 through 6 in this section at the wonder of God's knowledge. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. So notice this is past tense. Later on in the psalm, he'll ask God to do this. He'll request searching. But here he says, you've searched me. God, you know me already. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. How would you feel if you were walking around and someone near to you knew every thought that you had? Wouldn't that make you a little bit uncomfortable, right? If your thoughts were just completely transparent, if you had no ability to edit or hide or shield them, right? He's saying, God, you know everything I'm thinking, everything I've thought. You knew when I got up. You knew when I laid down. You knew everything about me. There's no hiding from God. His knowledge is comprehensive. Verse 3 says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Have you ever been in that situation where someone knows what you're going to say before you say it? And then you're, no, oh, darn it, they found me out. They knew what I was going to say. You feel defeated, right? You don't, you don't feel like you're in control. Well, God, God is in control. He, he knows what you're going to say. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what's on your tongue. He knows what's on your mind. He goes on to say in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Uh, in the text, Robert Alter, who's a famous Jewish scholar, says that this uh, kind of grammar and the Hebrew word for him me in can often be an aggressive term, but because of the context of the psalm, uh, it's more of a potter term of control, but in a, in a beautiful sense. It's seen here as wonderful, going on to say, your hand is upon me, like a potter shaping clay. And we see that also because of the context later on of God creating us in the womb. And so, Alter says this could be scary, but it's not scary, it's beautiful. It's an artist shaping us. So his hand is on us as a potter's hand would be on clay. Verse 6, such wonderful, or excuse me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. John Frame has done a lot of work uh, in the world in the world of theology and philosophy. Um, and what he talks about is the concept of creaturely knowledge. Uh, and what that means is we can know God and we can know things about God, but we can't really know everything, right? We're limited. We're limited in our knowledge. But God is not limited in his knowledge. So God is omniscient, and then we have creaturely knowledge. We have a kind of submissive knowledge. We, we still can know things, right? We would disagree with the with a radical postmodern or a radical liberal theologian who would say, you can't even know things, so you might as well give up trying to know things. No, we can know things. We can know and be responsible for what God has told us to do. But verse 6 is really a posture of worship saying, I don't have absolute knowledge like you do, God, and your knowledge and what you do and how you think, it's too wonderful for me. It's incredible. God is huge. So how do you feel about God knowing everything you're thinking? What's your first reaction to that? What do you, what do you want to do? Does that change your thought life? Does that change the way you think about your thinking? Um, a lot of you may want to do this. I don't know if you've seen this movie, Signs. In the movie Signs, uh, they would wear tinfoil hats to 
prevent the aliens from invading their mind and uh, reading their thoughts. I don't know if some of you may do this at home as well. Um, But I would argue that the tinfoil hat will not prevent God from knowing your thoughts. There's really no shield that's strong enough. Not even a lead hat would work, guys. It's, uh, he's, all, he's all knowledge. He, he knows everything. There's no way to stop him from, from getting into our head. So again, the question is really, what do we do with that? I would say that what's modeled for us here in the Psalms is wonder and worship. What's modeled for us here in the Psalms is wonder and worship based on the character of God. Based on God being a loving God, a forgiving God, a covenant-making God, a saving God, a redeeming God, a God who adopts this people and says, I'm going to rescue you out of slavery and make you my treasured possession, and I'm going to use you then to bless the rest of the world. We're, we're caught up in that same story. We're a part of God's people. This is the kind of God that we serve, so, so we should be glad that he knows us. We should be glad that he knows everything. When we talk about uh, the incredible power and knowledge of God, um, a lot of people squirm, right? People get frustrated with the idea of the sovereignty of God and how powerful he is. And I, I think at its root, the reason we're uncomfortable with that is because we're not completely convinced that he is good and he is loving. I think the more we become convinced of the gospel that God is good and he proved that through the cross, the more then we're okay with God being God. The more we can actually take comfort in his sovereignty and his knowledge and his omniscience in his bigness. And so my, my challenge for you would be this. If you struggle with God and his bigness, I would challenge you to look more at the cross. Read more in the gospel because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to get to know the character of God, I would challenge you to look more at the gospels. Look more at who Jesus is and how he's re- revealed himself. And I believe as you do that, as you go down that track, you'll be more comfortable with this kind of God that knows everything about you this kind of God that you can't hide from, that you can't run from. The next thing that the author goes to here in this psalm is the wonder of presence. And uh, we often call this, again, in uh, old theological terms, omnipresence. You might have heard that term before. So that means all present. He's everywhere. You can't escape from him. This is different from uh, the idea that God is, you know, in the trees and the rocks and he's one with creation. We would still, as Christians, uh, agree with the Jewish faith Uh, both would agree that there's a creator-creature distinction. That God's not the same thing as creation. He's just so big in his godness that there's no part of creation that can escape him. Does that make sense? So that's a a distinction that we would make. We're not saying the same thing as Eastern religion that would say God is the rock. We're saying the rock can't hide from God. God made the rock. Um, So there's this wonder at his presence, and we see this in verses uh, 7 through 12. Look at verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So uh, heavens are where God lives. Sheol is the place of the dead and, and their terminology. And so he's saying, if I go into your presence, there you are. If I go down to the place of the, of the dead, I, I can't even escape you there. You're Everywhere, So he's, he's going to go bouncing back and forth between extremes, and he's going to go on with that in the next verse. Remember in par- uh, the parallelism of Hebrew poetry? They're always going to kind of repeat things and give parallel views of things. Verse 9 says, If I take the wings of the morning, uh, other translations would say the wings of the dawn, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, I think this is 
uh, really operating on two levels here. Poetically, it's talking about um, kind of mythical visions of other, other religions that talk about you know, the, the sun flying or being a chariot or things like that. He's saying, uh, even, I can't even escape you there. You're, you're there too. But I think more broadly, he's just talking about it in a geographical sense of everywhere, right? The sun goes from uh, here where the sun dawns out here to the sea. It goes, it goes everywhere, right? And God spans the whole map. Everywhere the sun goes, God goes as well. God goes to heaven, God goes down to the depths, God goes to this side, God goes to that side. He, he's everywhere. There's no place you can run away from him. Verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This is powerful. He's saying even in the dark you can still see. In the places that we're afraid, in the places where we feel like he's not presence, uh, not present, God's presence is there. There's, there's no escaping from God. He is everywhere. Have you ever heard the phrase God forsaken? Y'all ever heard that phrase before, some of you? Uh, we tend to think about this in terms of a really bad place really bad place. We can think about this very personally, like in our own life, you know, we go through a place where like God wasn't there because we were sinning or we were caught in addiction or we were caught in some kind of bad downward spiral. Um, but there's nowhere we can escape God. We think about this in terms of horrible places. Some of you have been to horrible places with the military or maybe on a mission trip, you've traveled to a rough part of the world. And there can be this feeling that we have when people aren't living uh, in submission to the rule and reign of God, we see real consequences to that, right? We see, we see real brokenness when people reject God's authority. Um, but that doesn't mean that they've somehow escaped God. The scriptures are reminding us of the tension here that even though there are real consequences and real pain when we sin or when whole cultures sin or when people abuse others, there's, there's real sin, there's real pain, there's real wickedness there, but that doesn't mean that God's disappeared. It doesn't mean that God has stopped being God. And uh, a lot of people have had difficult, um, difficult times of life when they go into these places and they, they start to doubt that God even exists, right? Some of you have probably been there when you've gone through something hard or you've seen something really evil. You start to feel like God can't exist anymore. Here's a picture of uh, the streets, slums in India. Um, these are cows and pigs right next to a motorcycle in a bunch of trash on an ordinary street in a big city in India. Um, I've had friends, known people, that when they traveled to New Delhi, they were so rocked by the corruption and the disgusting waste and dirtiness that, that it shook their faith. It shook their faith. And I want to remind you that God is moving the world towards a place of repair. And that's our story, right? That God is redeeming the world. And he's now living with great patience waiting for people to repent. And we're a part of God's work in the world, calling people to himself. And so it's our job to make these horrible places better. It's our job to make the world better. And the message is that God is forgiving and gracious and he's calling people to himself. And it's our job to make things better. That's what he's called us to. And he's with us. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, and I will be with you until the very end of the age. There's nowhere we can run from his presence. 
And so as hard as it is when you go to these kinds of places or where you experience these kinds of times in your life, don't, don't call them God-forsaken places. Br- bring God into those places. Invite God into those places. When you're stuck in sin, invite God in to give you the gift of repentance and begin walking in newness. When you go to a, a, a broken place that's physically overwhelming with all the corruption and the, the dirt and the grime, Invite God into that place. Invite him to be present with you. I think we need to uh, remember the third use of the law in our own life. The third use of the law is this concept that God loves us, and because he loves us, we should obey God's law. We can use it to change things. And so his loving presence, uh, specifically here it says the Holy Spirit, right, in verse 7, His loving presence, specifically in the person of the Holy Spirit, empowers us and strengthens us to obey God and to clean up the mess in our own life, right? Our own life can be like pigs wandering around the street. God calls us to lovingly uh, yield ourselves to him, trusting that he's good and gracious and forgiving. I love the picture I've shared with you before from John Lynch's book, The Cure, and from his book, True Faced, where he says we should envision Jesus with his arm around us saying, let's work on the mess together. Let's work on the mess together. Remember that he's with you. Remember that God is with you. Don't think that just because you're facing evil, that means God's not there. God is with you, and he wants to work through you to make things better. He wants to work in your life as he gives us the gift of repentance and the strength to encourage and to minister to others in their brokenness. The last thing we want to look at is the wonder of creativity in verses 13 through 18. The wonder of God's creative power, starting in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This is kind of a hard verse because it You think you're with him, right? For a minute, you're like, yeah, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, and then all of a sudden you're being knit together uh, under the ground, right? Like a a pig being roasted in Hawaii or something. That's that's not exactly what he's saying here, okay? What he's talking about when he talks about the depths of the earth is really just poetic language for secret, deep places, right? Secret, hidden, deep places. And again, Hebrew parallelism, when we understand how Hebrew poetry works, we see that very clearly in the text. He makes multiple references to how God operates as a woman is carrying a child. God is at work creatively through that, supernaturally through that natural process. God is at work there. And so very clearly saying God is at work there, and then he uses this other reference to say it's the secret, deep, hidden place, talking about uh, under the earth. But really, specifically, he's talking about in the womb, and we see that in verse 13. Go to verse 16. He says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So this is a little bit of uh, Yoda ordering of words here. Uh, But what he's saying is that my days were written ahead of time in your book. What does that mean? Does God actually have a giant book with with ink? Um, I'm not sure if he actually has a giant book with ink, but I know he's in charge of my life. I know he's planned out my life to some degree. And again, this is uh, overwhelming and terrifying to us when we don't think God is loving and gracious and good. But when we know that God is absolutely just 
What does that mean? That means he's not going to be unfair. He might do something that we think at some time in our life is unfair, but he will not really be unfair. He is just. And he is gracious. God is good. God is loving. God is kind. If we know those things about God, then we're okay with him being an absolutely sovereign God that can plan out our life. Right? Are we still real humans that make real decisions? Yes. The Scripture doesn't really resolve that tension for us. The Scripture says we have real choices to make that really matter. At the same time, somehow God is so sovereign that he's, he's created us and planned out our life. And, and that's a hard thing to understand how that works out. But I would recommend taking the posture of the psalmist that uses that as cause to worship, uses that as cause to trust and rest in, oh, my daddy has this. He's, he's in control. He's got this worked out. The way Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, is that we're saved by grace, but there are these works that God has planned for us. There are these good works that God has planned for us to do. And so that should give us a confidence as we walk into each day that God's got stuff planned out for us to do to bring his presence and his goodness into the world. So again, in your book was written all these days before any of them had happened. Verse 17 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This uh, Commentators disagree on exactly what this means, uh, but I think the one that makes the most sense is it's like he falls asleep uh, meditating on God's word. We have that image throughout the Psalms, right, of meditating on God's word throughout the watches of the night. Uh, That happened to me last night. I couldn't sleep. So I'm just praying Psalm 139 as I'm sleeping. I don't really know when I fell asleep, but I wake up and God's still with me. I don't know if you've had that experience before, but you fall asleep praying and you wake up and he's still there. Other commentators think of this as a picture of it being like a dream that's too good to be true. You know that feeling of being in a wonderful dream and you wake up and it's not really true? Have y'all ever had that? That's happened to some of us, right? Um, He's saying this dream you wake up and it's still true. This dream is still true. This is a dream, but it's a true dream. You fall asleep, you dream of how wonderful, how precious God is to you, and you wake up, and he's, he's still with you. He's still with you. And this is all driven from the creative power of this God that would take the time to fashion me. I remember my, my own life, personally, uh, as a teenager, I was struggling with difficulties I had in my life. Uh, no offense, teenagers, but I find that teenagers often Uh, can be a little bit self-focused. I know I was when I was a teenager. And and I remember being a little bit self-focused and a little bit frustrated with God because he hadn't done exactly what I wanted him to do with my life. And I've shared this with you before. I met a man that was paralyzed, and a lot of my own frustrations were related to athletics and uh, not being the great athlete that I wanted to be, having some injuries and struggles with that, and meeting a man who couldn't use his body at all, and he just overflowed with the joy of the Lord. And that was a clarifying moment for me, of turning from being mad at God for what he'd done with my life and then being able to rest in God, trusting that he was good, that he'd determined the steps of my life and and resting that, yeah, he made me like this and that's okay. This is God's plan. I'm going to do the best I can with what he's given me. And we all have to come to that turning point, but it, it starts here with recognizing God's at work even in the womb. And I want to use this just to talk about the Uh, importance as a culture of recognizing and valuing life in the womb. I have a picture here of a little baby being formed in the womb. It's a pretty famous picture that probably y'all have seen before. 
uh, in our country, it is legal to abort a child. Um, it's legal to end that life uh, for the sake of convenience. As a matter of fact, here's some statistics. Um, when you look at the percentages of, of abortion, um, less than 10% are because of the health of the mother, the health of the child, or rape or incest or something like that. The vast majority of them are for social reasons. The vast majority of the abortions in our country are for social reasons. I don't have the statistics. I'd also argue that the vast majority of m- abortions are a, uh, a racial problem as well, right? They're minorities. And so I believe as a people, as God's people who believe Psalm 139, uh, that we should be against abortion, that it's not okay with God, that that's not his plan. I know also that in a, a church of our size, there's, there's many of you that have had an abortion. And so I would also want to communicate to you that God is a forgiving God. And even though we would say you, sh- you shouldn't abort a baby, I would also tell you God is a forgiving God and you can find peace and forgiveness in Christ. So know you're welcome here. We, I've got many friends that have been through that and have found peace on the other side of a relationship with Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of the ministries that we partner with, Hope Pregnancy Center, runs uh, regular retreats for, f- for women who have been through an abortion and are trying to seek healing. So I'd, I'd recommend that ministry to you. The, the weekends are called Rachel's Vineyard. And I've participated in a couple of those, helping with those weekends. But what does it mean to value life in the womb? What does it mean to see that even though there are natural processes at work, uh, when a woman is carrying a child, God is at work. This is the creative power of the God of the universe. What does it mean uh, to believe that? Well, one, we're going to appreciate children, right? We're going to value children. Um, two, I would say we, we would want to be against abortion. We'd, we'd do things to encourage people not to abort their children. That's why we partner with Hope Pregnancy Center. What I love about Hope Pregnancy Center is they try to uh, embrace and befriend women that are facing that difficult decision and walk with them to choose life, help them practically to choose life, help them to find ways to put the child up for adoption or help them to find ways to keep and care for that child in a healthy way. So I believe uh, that we want to actually love people and help them when they're facing that difficult decision. I also think we should be about foster care and adoption. Uh, we promote foster care and adoption here. We do foster care training here. We've got a lot of folks here that have adopted. If you're interested, I could connect you with others that have adopted. Also, we have a family, Eric and Kim Lebs, that are going to be adopting, and they're doing a 5K fundraiser coming up. I'd recommend jumping in on their 5K fundraiser to support them. We'll have more information about it next week, but it's coming up here in the beginning of September. Um, but we want to be a church that supports that. As a church, we can't adopt babies, right? Churches can't adopt, but the people in the church can adopt, and so we want to support you in those efforts and encourage you in those efforts. I also just want to say that as a culture, we need to value children. We need to value our children, and I think so often we get uh, caught up in what the culture says that children are just an inconvenience, right? And I would agree, I would sympathize with you that children can be inconvenient sometimes, but the Bible says they're a gift from God. So we should value the children that God has given us, love the children that we have. Big picture, we as parents and as uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters in the church, we need to to balance uh, both sides. We need to balance the side of consistent, non-angry discipline. We need to be disciplined people. We need to discipline our children. We need to balance that also at the same time, both together with joy and delight in our children. We need to show love to them. We need to delight in them. Again, both of those consistently. Don't swing from one to the other 
like Jekyll and Hyde, but be both all the time with your kids. That's important. That's valuable. Details. I, I would just challenge you as a people, if your parents engage your own kids spiritually, don't just hand that off to the church. We have, we have strong programs here. We have good Sunday school here. We have a good youth group here. But don't think that that's just something you can delegate. Be involved. Pray, pray with your kids. Model the spiritual life with them. Bring them into the worship service with you. Talk to them about what they're learning in, in Sunday school or in youth group. And uh, begin working through those things with them. Walking through them in a discipleship relationship. Another thing that I really want to challenge you on, because I think our culture has kind of lost its mind in this area, is, is limit TV and video games. Limit TV and video games. I know that's hyper-specific, and there's no verse about TV or video games in the Bible, okay? So I'll grant that this is kind of a gray issue. So I'm not banning them. I'm not saying they're evil and, you know, go burn them. I'm saying limit them. Limit them. Please limit them. Because so many folks are just like, yeah, it's just what kids do. You're, you're like, their brains are dissolving, okay? But limit TV and video games. And then the third one that I think our culture has really missed out on is, is teach them that hard work is normal and fruitful. Teach them that hard work is normal and fruitful. We are a rich society. We are a spoiled society, and we're raising kids that are out of touch with reality. We've, we've got to teach them to work hard. The last thing I want us to think about is just these last few verses and we'll wrap up here. I know we've gone a little over time. Look at the last few verses of Psalm 139. Really direct application piece here in verse 19. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Again, this is the cursing stuff that we've seen that makes us uncomfortable. Imprecatory Psalms. He says, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So again, this is uncomfortable for us in our culture because we're not really a justice culture. We're a blind mercy culture, right? We're a grace without justice culture. Tends to be where we are as a a people. And here God is saying through the psalmist, we should hate evil. We should hate wickedness. We should be for justice. But then it's tempered with verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need God's grace to search out the evil and the wickedness in our own hearts. And we give thanks that that's the kind of God who he is. He's a gracious God that pursues us in relationship and he's proven that through Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are so good and so righteous that we can actually embrace your searching, invasive presence. Help us to see it as a blessing and as grace. We thank you that you're with us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.